I'm going to start at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come in into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you that it's not too late for us to hear your word this morning. I thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, to dig into your word and and uh, hear what it says, Lord. I pray that you give us ears to hear, Lord, and hearts to understand. I pray that you'd anoint Jackie, Lord, and the words that he would share with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we began this discourse a while back, You may remember that it all started with lunch. Jesus with the Pharisees and the charge that he had all these outcasts coming to him. Whoops. (laughs) That's easier than a person falling. A pumpkin's not so bad. So as we look at it, he had this, this concept. They had this idea. Okay, well... These, these broken people, these people are a mess, and they're coming to you, but we're okay. And they stood off to the side, and so Jesus said, you know, if you were okay, then the attitude you would have when people were coming to salvation would be rejoicing, right? Because that's what happens in the heavens. Remember one sheep lost, leave the 99, go get the one, what happens when he finds it? Big party, right? Big party, but, but there's no party there. There's no, nobody's excited about it. Second story, you have the coins, right? And they go find the coin. What happens when one coin's found? When they lost a coin and they found it? Big party, celebration. But that's not what's happening. So you have this group of people who are saying, look, we're good. God obviously loves us. We can see in our lives the blessing of God. We have everything we need. We have food, we have money, we have houses, all the stuff. And and really, if God was upset with us, he'd take all that away and we'd be like those people. Is that right? 
That was kind of the attitude they had. So Jesus told another parable. He said a father had two sons. Remember, one lost, one stayed home. The lost one returns, and when the lost one returns, there's this big party, but the elder son, he won't join. The elder son stays outside, throws a big fit, says, no, 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 I've always been here. I don't need to enter into this feast. I don't need to enter in. And the father comes out and begs him, son, come into the feast. And we're left at the end of the story with the son outside and the father begging the son to enter in, to come be a part of this feast. Come enter into the joy that is your younger brother was dead and now he's alive again. Meanwhile, as Jesus is telling these stories and he's sharing these things with the the disciples, there's the crew right over there, the elder brother that doesn't want to enter in, that doesn't want to celebrate, that assumes the abundance that they have, the the money, the stuff, the things, the, the things they see as blessings in their life are a symbol of God's approval. It's a terrible way to keep score. The scribes and Pharisees had it all. Right? The the best donkeys. The the best places. The best place to live. The best neighborhood to stay in. They were healthy. They weren't sick. They weren't struggling. They didn't have any of these things. So the Lord said, listen, you can't serve God and mammon and they're thinking as they stand off to the side well what do you mean i we recognize the the blessing of god in our mammon we recognize that god's for us because good things are happening to us we got good stuff and so they're looking at that and then jesus gives them we just the last verse we read last time this concept that they they were disobedient to what the word of god had laid out for him. The word of God had declared that uh, in Malachi, actually, that God hates divorce. And so Jesus says, but you are willing to divorce a woman just so you can have another woman and pretend it's not adultery. You're willing to do that. You're willing to say, well, you know, I just got out of this deal and I got into a new deal. And so it's not a sign that there's sin in my heart, that there's adultery in my heart. I, I've covered it up. Jesus, in other places, is going to say to the same group of guys, you are whitewashed tombs. You guys know what's in a whitewashed tomb? Death. But if, if you're a, a son of the king, if you're a child of the king, if you're part of the family of God, what's in you? The outside might look different. But the inside, there's life. Why is there life? Because the the king of life, the light of men, he dwells within you. So the outside, the Lord's saying, the outside is of less concern. And you're going to have this this picture kind of laid out as we look at these teachings of the man who came to the Lord as a tax collector, a mess, not, not perfect, rip people off. He's finding the things he's done wrong will be easy. But he comes before the Lord, bows his knees and says, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. 
And the Pharisee comes to the Lord and says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And Jesus says, The one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, he goes away justified. He goes away justified because he sees his need. One of the biggest dangers that faced the people that Jesus was sharing the gospel with was the danger of, I'm good. I've got all the boxes checked. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm good. Yet Jesus is calling these same men to repentance. So he tells them one more parable. A parable about their future. There's another time that the scribes and Pharisees are saying to Jesus, Man, you've got tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, all these people hanging around you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, You know, when we sit down with Abraham at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, these will be there, and you will be outside crying to get in. These who are coming, these who are repenting, these who are hearing the call of the Lord and not making some kind of excuse, just taking responsibility. Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. That's all the harder it is to receive mercy from God, right? So he tells one more parable. And this parable, if it is a parable, is about hell. Now, what do we know about hell? Well, really, we don't know much. Most of the concepts of hell that we have in our minds come from the Middle Ages, come from poetry, come from other things that have been written. And we often think about hell and in different terms, but let's, let's just consider for a moment, what's, what does the Bible say about it? What is it that the Bible, how does the Bible describe it? Eleven times in the Bible, the Bible uses the word Hades. It's a Greek word that quite literally means the grave. Basically means the abode of the dead. The place where the dead go. Where do the dead go? Well, we dig a hole and we put them in. Or we have a cave and we stick them in the cave. We put them in a box. This is the abode of the dead. That's Hades. Twelve times it uses the phrase Gehenna. Gehenna is an Aramaic word. It comes from the, the phrase the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. And the reason Jesus uses Gehenna as a description of the abode of the dead is because that's the place where they burned all their trash, all their garbage. In fact, they thought that the Valley of Hinnom was cursed, had some kind of curse on it because for hundreds of years of their history, they sacrificed their children in the Valley of Hinnom. They go burn them. And then instead of making the Valley of Hinnom something else, they just made it the dump. So they'd burn their trash in the valley of Hinnom. In Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 30, this is what Jeremiah said. He said, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So, 12 times the Lord uses that word, Gehenna, to describe the abode of the dead. The the place where there is for the unrighteous, where the unrighteous go. One time the Bible uses the phrase Tartarus. 
Tartarus, which uh, if we were to translate it literally would be something like the demon dungeon. The demon dungeon. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Tartarus. Cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So we have all of these words... All of these phrases throughout the New Testament to de- try to describe to us the place uh, where the unrighteous dead are. And I, sometimes I, I, I can mess with people's noodles when I say, you know, the, the place probably that you're thinking of as hell is empty. There's nobody there yet. The Bible talks about the lake of fire, right? And the lake of fire doesn't receive any of its inhabitants until after the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment hasn't happened yet. So the great white throne judgment is the place where all the living and the dead will stand before God. The quick and the dead, the Bible calls it. And that will be a line of all the unrighteous, not the righteous. The righteous stand in judgment before Christ. We have our judgment before the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. It's a, it's a judgment wherein he declares that we are saved and he judges our works. And that which is wood, hand, stubble burns away. But that which is gold, precious stones, gems, that becomes a lasting reward. Maybe something that we cast back at the feet of Jesus. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. The Great White Throne Judgment is a place where all of Hades, all of Gehenna, all of Tartarus, all of the pit, every place that has been described in the Bible as the place of the abode of the dead will be emptied before a great white throne. And the Lord will check to see if their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if they are not there, then they pass from the great white throne to the lake of fire. Sometimes we try to describe things that we can't really describe as uh, the place of the absence of God, which is theologically a difficult thing to construct. Maybe it makes your mind happy, but part of the nature of God is he's everywhere all the time. (laughs) Where is the place where God isn't? So we have these things, New Testament laying out for us, that there is... An abode, a chamber, a prison, a place where the unrighteous dead await judgment. Not a place where the unrighteous dead get a second chance. The Bible says it is appointed unto man to die once and then judgment. There's no... There's no other opportunities. There's no other chances. And so, as Jesus is discussing these things with with the scribes and the Pharisees, he's telling this last parable. He wants them to, to maybe have an opportunity to hear. The, the abode of my future. If I reject Christ. This story could just as easily be said of me. Part of the challenge for us when we come to this story is, is it a parable? There's something different about this parable than every other parable Jesus tells. You know what it is? 
He used a name. Every other parable goes like, a man went out to sow. Or the master left, and the steward watched, right? There's no names. This one, there's a name. The name of the outcast. The name of the man who was destitute. His name is Lazarus, which means God is my help. The only one that's named. And, and you know, one of the interesting things is the, the Lord tells us that the ones that belong to Him, He knows. And the ones that don't, what's He say? I don't know them. I know the ones that are mine. The sheep hear my voice and they know my voice and they follow me. I know my sheep. But the others, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Is it true is it not true? I don't know, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, comparison by contrast going on in this story. So hopefully we'll be able to see it, because it's going to illustrate this idea. Can I know that God is blessing my actions by my status, by my wealth, by my health? Is that how I know I'm right with God? This is a question that he's going to answer. So he begins in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Now we just heard a parable, right? About the lost son and the father killed the fatted calf. The idea is that this guy eats a fatted calf every day. A wealthy guy might eat a fatted calf now and again. But this guy's got it all. It says he's clothed in linen and purple. To, to wear linen was a statement of wealth. To wear purple was a statement that you had greater wealth than someone who wore linen. But someone who wore linen as the undergarment and purple as the outer garment, but he had more than anybody ever heard of. The picture is this incredible wealth, this incredible Blessing, if you'd look at it that way, on this man's life. Clothed in purple and fine linen. Feasting sumptuously every day. And at his gate, don't miss this, at his gate was laid a poor man. Why was he laid there? Well, if he was laid there, it's because he was crippled. He couldn't, he couldn't go anywhere. And so, in a, in a Jewish social life... The poor, the destitute, the crippled, the sick, the, the ones who had nothing, they would lay them outside the gates of the wealthy. Because that is where they could get alms. There's no sense in laying them outside the door of the poor, is it? So they don't lay them outside the door of the poor, they lay them outside the door of this incredibly wealthy man. He's laid out there. What is he clothed in? says he laid a poor man named Lazarus. What's he clothed in? Sores. The other guy, linen and purple. This guy clothed in sores. is a cripple. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of what that is. Because sometimes we think, you know, somehow the guy was eating outside, out by the gate. And, you know, he'd throw a chunk of meat to the dogs, you know, and this this crippled guy is trying to crawl over and get it. That's not how it works. How it works is the wealthy used bread 
as napkins. So he'd eat this huge meal and then they'd wipe their faces and their hands and all with this these loaves of bread. And they'd take and gather up all that all those loaves, all those crumbs, and they'd throw it out the gate. And every dog in the neighborhood knew what time to be there, right? Uh, my dog knows, guaranteed, when something eating's going on. If the barbecue starts, dog knows. If I walk in the kitchen, Kathy's little rat dog will follow me. <laughs> right on my heels. Because she's pretty sure fat guy in the kitchen equals foods coming out. <laughs> and I'll pull out something, maybe i make a sandwich, and uh, God forbid you drop something. Because that dog that is... So fat it can barely move is like a great white shark if something hits the floor. Bam! Don't even try to pick it back up. Just back away. So the dogs know. So what about every mangy dog in the neighborhood who doesn't have anybody taking care of it? If a guy every day threw all this food outside his gate, you don't think the dogs are there? Yeah, the dogs are there. And so this poor guy... He's got to fight off the mangy dogs to try to get a piece of bread. Or whatever is cast off of the table of the rich man. And I promise you, the rich man probably thought he was doing them a favor. I'll throw them crumbs out that gate where that crippled guy is. It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So... This is not like some kindness the dogs are trying to show them. <laughs> they're just tasting him. Later on, there's a chance that's going to be part of the meal. Well, you'll see it in a minute. So now I just want you to consider. Stand back and look at these two examples. The guy who's got everything. Wealth, power, prestige. Everybody wants to know him. And the guy who has nothing. Broken, sore, can't walk, can't feed himself. Which one is justified in the eyes of God? Which one was able to call on the Lord and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner? That's what the story is going to illustrate. That's what the story is going to lay out for us. That's what the story is trying to get us to see. So look what happens in verse 22. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Don't miss that. Listen to the contrast of the rich man. The rich man died and was buried. What does that mean? It means nobody cared when the poor man died. Nobody had a funeral. The dogs just had a feast. The poor man died outside the gate. Probably was carried over to the valley of Hinnom. Throwed outside the dung gate. And the critters ate him. Who cares? That man had no status. That man had no social ability to be a part of our society that man was an outcast definitely unclean for sure and the rich man when he died now they they had a big shindig don't you think 
Oh yeah, the synagogue was full. People from everywhere flocked into it. They had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful meal afterwards. They had an incredible time of just talking and catching up. And just really thinking about what a great, godly man this man must have been. To have all the things that he had. But only one of them was carried by the angels. The other one finds himself in prison. Only one was repentant. Only one of them thought he needed a savior. You and I might say as we look back, wow, why would God allow all those hard things to happen in that person's life? Why would he allow him to have to be a cripple and spend his entire life? He has no family. Nobody cares about him. If he did, family would have been taking care of him. But no family's taking care of him. Somebody just drops him outside the gate. I mean, you know, really, where do we find a God of love in this whole picture? Well, just ask yourself the question, what if that whole picture is what led that man to repent? What if that picture is what led that man to look up into the heavens and say, God, have mercy on me. And the God who says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, heard him. Just like the tax collector in prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the angels gather him up and carry him to Abraham's bosom. It says the poor man died, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. Now what does this mean? What is this describing for us? You know, the, the best we can do when we look at this story is, is have an understanding that there was, within the abode of the dead, two chambers. One for the righteous dead, one for the unrighteous. We'll see in a moment that they're, they're apart. One can't move from one side to the other. There's a great chasm between us. They can't cross to one side or the other. Scripture would seem to indicate that when Jesus died, he's going to lead the captives free. You see, even the righteous dead can't enter into the glories of heaven without the blood of Christ. The righteous dead are those who by faith trusted in Messiah who was to come. And when he came... He would open the door and set them free. But the other side, they're still waiting for a great white throne. So in this story, Jesus is just talking. He hasn't died on the cross, hasn't risen from the dead, right? We don't have those things haven't happened yet. So he lays out this idea here. The, the, the rich man is in Hades. Does he know? According to the story, does the rich man know where he's at? Yeah, he knows. Does he know he's in torment? Yeah. Does he know he, 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 he needs mercy? He does now, right? Now he has 20-20 vision, right? 
kind of important that we have 2020 vision before that. That's why Jesus is telling the story. So he calls out. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So it's interesting. A lot of interesting things here. First, he looks at Abraham and calls him his father. Why would you call him your father? Well, you call him father because he's the father of the Jewish nation. And so by birth, I'm one of his children. But the Bible says all those who live their life by faith are sons of Abraham. All those who follow his example are sons of Abraham. Not the birth order. Not the fact that you were born in the line. That did nothing for you. So he looks at Abraham and he says, Father, and he assumes Lazarus is standing beside Abraham to be the little you know, carrier between the, the people in Hades, the people in suffering, and the people who are on the other side. So he's assuming... That, that Lazarus is going to be the errand boy, right? Send, send Lazarus. I mean, after all, he, was, he can't be anybody important. Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here to cool my tongue. But Abraham said, Child, remember in your lifetime, you received good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. Here he is comforted. And you are in anguish. Because what they thought they were was wrong. If you get a chance, read the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Jesus gives a a grade to each of the churches. The seven churches of, of Revelation. The seven churches. He gives each one a grade and each one surprised. The ones who think, man, we must be in a bad place because we're suffering and we're going through all these things, they were the most blessed. And the ones who had all the stuff, that was Laodicea, who had all the stuff and they said, man, we're rich, we're wealthy, we have need of nothing. They're the ones that God said, you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, a man's got to know who he is in Christ. A man's got to know where he is in the scheme of what's going on, what's happening. A man has to, has to really, truly understand. The Bible says, if you will judge yourself and not your neighbor, I put that part in. If you judge yourself, you won't need to be judged. Maybe if we put as much effort into thinking about me, my relationship, am I sincere am i real have i knelt before god almighty then i won't be judged because i'll be able to see my need but these they couldn't see the rich man in the midst of his torment he was able to communicate he could see he desired mercy he had feeling he had awareness all of these things. People ask the question, what, what's hell like? I don't know, but that, that seems to be a description of what people in hell are aware of. Doesn't it sound like he's aware of things? It does say he's in torment. I don't know what that torment's like. It does say he wants a drop of water to cool his tongue. I, I, don't, know, I don't know why. 
He doesn't tell us. He simply tells us a place we don't want to be. Yeah? It does not sound like a party. It sounds like a place where man is able to stand up and say, I know myself here. When maybe he was not as honest with who he was before. Is there any hope there? No? Big chasm. People aren't going from one side to the other or the other side back. Once you're there, it's set. Revelation has an interesting light on this. In, in that scripture I shared from you out of Peter, says that in Tartarus, right? They're, they're in chains in Tartarus. The demonic dungeon, remember? The, the book of Revelation describes it as a bottomless pit. You remember in Revelation chapter 9, there's an angel who comes to the bottomless pit to do something. You remember what it is? He opens it up and he lets them out. Seems like a bad thing to do. Why would you release all the demons in the dungeon? Why would you turn them all loose? Well, this world has rejected Christ, right? He's just a big joke. Yet this world still today enjoys the freedom He gives it. Still enjoys the blessings that He gives it. Still enjoys the good things that He pours out upon it. The rain falls on the evil and the good. Yes? On that day... God's going to give a picture. Here's what it looks like when I'm not protecting you. They say that that army that comes forth out of the bottomless pits like locusts, right? You guys remember the picture? They have a leader, a king, Apollyon or Abaddon. Both names mean the same thing, the destroyer. And they come to torment men. Now, when they were locked up, just so you know, they're not tormenting anybody. When we come to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 21, and the, the, the Bible says that God's going to take the devil and his angels, and he's going to cast them into the lake of fire. When they're cast into the lake of fire, there's no, nobody's running that show. It's not like God saying to Satan, here's your kingdom, so you can run it like you want. No, that's the weird pictures we get from the Middle Ages. The devil's in torment, just like this guy. The angel's in torment, just like this guy. They're not running anything from that place. Nobody's running anything from that place. It's a bad place and it was not made for you. God didn't sit around and say, you know what I really need to do is motivate people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this really bad place and I'm going to then tell people if they don't follow me, I'm going to put them there. The Bible says the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. One created for you. How do you get there? I got to step over the broken body of my Savior. According to Hebrews chapter 6, I got to trample through the blood of Jesus to walk off the edge. 
That's me. That's the Pharisee. That's the rich man who says, I have need of nothing and no one. I have everything I want. I just need to build a bigger barn. And then when I build my bigger barn, I'm going to finally take it easy. And God says to him, thou fool. Today your soul is required of you. And is it because he had big barns that God's judging him? Is it because he had all this stuff that God's judging him? Is it because, is it because of all those things? No, it's because throughout his life he never thought he needed to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. He figured, I must be good because I'm living a good life. And if I, if I was bad, bad things would happen to me. You ever read Job? You might want to take that theory and check it at the door. So we see here, the rich man, he has no hope. So he comes to something. He doesn't ask for himself. Never once in his story does the rich man say, get me out of here. So he knows that's done, right? He knows that part's finished. I'm here. So look what he says in verse 27. So he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and warn them that they also, lest they also should come into this place of torment. Send Lazarus back to get my brothers. Tell them to get their attention so they don't come here. He has a, a, a recognition of the need. Perhaps. Perhaps in his life. Lazarus was to him an example of someone who trusted in God. But he could never see it. Because he's just so dirty. Just so gross and... Yeah, I just can't see it. I can't, I can't see the value. But he's blinded by the belief he's already acceptable to God through his wealth. So he says, send Lazarus. Lazarus, just like Lazarus was a sign for him, right? You get it? He says, send him, send him to my brothers. Send him back to my brothers. Send him there so that they can, so that they can hear. But Abraham said to them, Abraham said, they have Moses. And the prophets. Let them hear them. And this is where the rub comes. This is where the rub comes from the end of last week's sermon, right? Where we just had that one little verse about divorce. About a man saying, I'm going to divorce my wife and marry another. Thinking he's covering up his adultery. And Jesus saying, that didn't cover it up. Oh, you just broke one covenant to start another. Doesn't cover it up. Right? But, the, but some of the religious right, they figured, well, it's good. I'm covered. It's all covered. It's all good. So, you know, we made it right. We, we're following the letter of the law. We're obeying what the law says. So, so Jesus here says, through Abraham, he says, Abraham is saying to the rich man who's looking for someone to teach his brothers, they have... The law and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have a Bible which declares that man has a moral obligation to his creator. And what it should signify is that man 
fails his moral obligation to his creator. So man needs mercy. How does man obtain mercy? He just asks. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Was this overly complicated? But you know who doesn't want to do that? The proud. The proud says, oh no, I'm good. So the Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The picture of the tax collector on his knees before the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man, Jesus said, left justified. The one kneeling next to him, thank you God, I'm not dirty like that guy. That man left lost. That man left lost. And here Jesus is talking to them, standing on the side, complaining about these who are coming to him. John chapter 5, verse 45. Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? He's saying, Moses told you I was coming. Moses told you that there would be another prophet like him. And when he came, listen to what he said. But you didn't believe Moses. So you can't hear me. Your hope is in Moses, but Moses is condemning you. In Deuteronomy 18, here is that scripture. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers. So a Jew is going to come up, declare himself to be the prophet, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, the King. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. That's when the Ten Commandments is coming to the people. The law is being delivered to the people. All the people are standing in front of Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is up in the fire and smoke and lightning. And God's voice is shouting down at the people, the Ten Commandments. And they're freaking out. Wouldn't you be? They're freaking out, saying, oh, we can't handle this. You're right. You can't handle this. What do you need? Mercy. So God says, you know, I'm going to send you a prophet who will come and talk to you. And when he comes and talks to you, listen to him. Hear him. The Lord said, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. A man. Fully man. Fully God. Colossians 1.19 And the Lord said, I will put my words in his mouth. And he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, he shall speak in my name. I will require it of him. So here he is. The prophet that Moses talked about standing before the ones who should have recognized him more than anybody else. The people are coming to him. The blind see, the lame walk. Hey, that wasn't a normal thing, right? That was abnormal. 
All these things, the lepers are cleansed, all these incredible miracles are going on, all these amazing signs are happening around him. Surely they would recognize this is the one. But they don't. Because they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear Jesus. Neither will they believe. Even if one was to rise from the dead. Look what he says in verse 30. So he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone will go to them from the dead, they'll repent. If there's this amazing sign. Matthew 16, 1-4, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him and asked him, Show us a sign from heaven. And he answered, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the day, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign will be given it, save the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left. You think everybody knew what the sign of the prophet Jonah was? You guys know Jonah's story? What happened to Jonah? He got swallowed by a fish, right? Three days later, got puked up on the shore. The sign of the prophet Jonah. This will be the sign. So this rich man, he says, send him someone who's risen from the dead. Send him someone like that. And they'll repent and they'll change and they'll come. And Abraham's response, he said to them, If they will not hear Moses or the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Whenever we look at data in this world, the data is always the same. The interpretation of the data is where things get weird. And the way we interpret data is by our worldview or framework. So we'll build a framework and we'll interpret the data through that. If my framework is that I am a a naturalist, materialist, I believe matter is what exists and there is no supernatural, I look at the data and I will render from the data what I believe the data says. If I'm a Christian, with a Christian worldview, I look at the same data and I come up with different results. Did the data lie? Oh, it's just data. It's just data. How you interpret the data. You want to watch it every single day? Whatever the latest news story is, turn on CNN. You see the framework and the data being interpreted through their framework. Then turn on Fox. I don't even care which one you like more. It doesn't make any difference. It's an exercise. The data didn't change. The data is still the data. What changed was the framework through which the data passes and is interpreted. Anybody ever been a history buff? Any history buffs? Let me tell you, we know a lot of things about history, right? Did the Battle of Gettysburg happen? How do we know? The data, right? We go to the data, the data says, look here, all this evidence points to the fact that the Battle of Gettysburg occurred. Yeah? We okay with that? What about about, um, 
the battle at the hot gates in Thermopylae. Did that really happen? Was there a battle there? What's the data say? Yeah, really happened. There was a battle. Not like the movies, sorry. There was 300 Spartans, but there was like 8,000 other guys. So, sorry, the, the, the whole 300 against a million, uh, that, that part's not quite right. But there was a battle there, right? King Leonidas, how do we know that? The data. A lot of things we know about history as we look at the data that we find, the historical data, the historical documents, all that stuff we look at. Listen to this. You would have to throw out everything you know about history to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the data that proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better than the data that says Gettysburg happened. It's better than all of those things. The problem is the data didn't change. What changes? The framework. I'm going to take the data and I'm going to say, well, you know, I'm going to... I, well, sure, we know that, that John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, right? Everybody knows that from history. Sure, that, that's what happened. But there's greater evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's greater evidence for the humanity of Jesus Christ. That he was born, that he lived, that he taught what he taught, that he said what he said he said, that he was put to death for saying he was the Son of God, and that three days later he rose again. The data doesn't lie. So how come people don't believe? You'd have to throw out everything you know about history to throw out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even if one was to raise from the dead. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ can it be taken away. So to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. As long as you think you're okay, you don't see. We're good. We're sons of Abraham by birth. In John 12, 37, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus, and spoke of him. When did Isaiah see Jesus? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Well, no man can see God. It's the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has revealed Him to us. He stood before Jesus on that day. If you will accept what the Word of God teaches, 
then you will see Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you won't, your heart will be hard, your eyes will be blind, your ears will be deaf, and you will not turn. We have to hear what is it that God is saying. Creation is broken, but God has made a way. All a man need do is bow before a holy God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. The man that won't, he won't. And looking at your health, wealth, and prosperity is not a way to decide whether or not you have God's approval. How does your life line up next to the Word of God? When I line my life up to the Word of God, this is what I discover. I need help. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I humble myself before the Lord. That's what He's calling us to. That's what he in love is trying to get the scribes and the Pharisees to see. Will they see? Will we? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you in the truth of your word, and this illustration that you lay out for us, This morning, God, I just, uh, I don't know if there's a better way to say it. God, I pray that you would wake us up to our need. That you would wake us up to the call. That you would wake us up to the things that you're asking us to do. God, that by your spirit, you would move in our life. If if there's anybody here today who who has not bowed the knee to you, who who as he judges himself says, you know what, I, I come up lacking don't make an excuse take the opportunity as we worship prayer counselors will be available all around the church you can walk up to any one of them and say you know I need to ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior and he will if we all humble ourselves before him then he will lift us up We also need to wake up to the reality that God is calling us to more than just punching a card and cruising through life. There is a man in this story who in hell had such a desire to see his brothers saved that he's pleading and begging if there's any way to send somebody. Well, God won't send somebody from the realm of the dead, but he will send someone from the realm of the living. That's us. I pray that we wake up to the reality that God is calling us to be involved, to engage, to not be afraid, to not stand in the shadows, to pray for boldness even as the disciples did in Acts chapter 4 and had the rushing wind blow through the room and shake as the boldness of the Holy Spirit entered into their lives. God, I pray that you make us bold, make us like you. Have your way in us. For it is high time to wake out of sleep.
For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.